All right, let's turn to the book of Daniel in chapter number 7. Daniel chapter number 7, and we're only going to read two verses today, uh, verse number 13 and 14. And so one of the ways that I get spiritual nourishment is by listening to podcasts. And one of the podcasts that I listen to on a weekly basis is titled On Preaching by H.B. Charles Jr. And his tagline for that podcast is, the On, uh, the on Preaching podcast is dedicated to helping you preach faithfully, clearly, and better. This week's podcast, um, his advice on preaching better, Brother Charles mentioned the need to think through the text. And so he talks about, you know, you read the text and you think through the text. And, and one of the things that I found out as I listened to that is that's one of the first steps that I make in preparing a sermon is that I read the text, and then I think through the text. Like, what did this text mean to the people to whom it was first written? And what are the implications of that text for us today? And that's a good spiritual tool for all of us. We read the text of Scripture, and we think through and meditate upon that text, and it gives us a good practice, and, and it's good for our spiritual growth. And I mention that because... Um, I've been thinking through the book of Daniel and thinking through the text. And you know that I've just come through six weeks of preaching through the book of Daniel. And when I first uh, began that series, trying to find some encouragement for living faithfully in troubled times, I thought it was going to be about three sermons. Um, I thought it would be Daniel 1, then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Daniel in the lion's den. But of course, you know that it turned into six weeks of uh, finding encouragement for living faithfully in troubled times, and, and hopefully you have done just that. You've listened to those messages, and maybe you've watched my TikToks, or maybe you've watched my uh, reel, and I've taken each one of those messages, and I've broken them down and made TikToks and reels out of those. But anyway, the whole purpose was to help us think about we're living in troubled times, and how can we look into the past into the book of Daniel and see how they lived faithfully in troubled times and then, you know, choose to live faithfully in troubled times ourselves. But in that, I, as I was thinking through the text of Daniel, I, I, I read Daniel chapter number 7. And I noticed in Daniel chapter number 7 that it said, um, that, that it gives Jesus a title, the Son of Man. And so in thinking through not only the text, but thinking through this Christmas season, the Advent season, what am I going to preach? And I thought about preaching the oratorio, Handel's Messiah, that's in three parts. And I thought, well, I can make each part of Handel's Messiah a, a sermon. So I thought through that. And, but when I saw Daniel mention Jesus as the Son of Man, that's an important title for Jesus, and I thought that would be a good topic for a sermon. It goes along with the book of Daniel, and so I'm going to preach the next three weeks on the Son of Man, then the Son of God, and then Jesus as the Word of God. So that's going to be, we're going to look at the names of Jesus as He came, God incarnate, God in the flesh, and here's some ways in the Scripture that we know Him. So we see in Daniel chapter number 7, verse 13, it says, and I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven. 
and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just pray today as we read the Word of God and we understand this is your Word. We understand that your Word is sufficient for us. I pray, God, that as we look into this Word, that your Holy Spirit will speak through this Word and through this sermon. Help us to be thankful for the Son of Man. And God, help us to see how important that is and how important it is for us to live our lives following Him. We just thank you for this truth that you give us, this insight that you give us. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. And so the first point that we want to think about today is that remembering Daniel, as we have looked through the book of Daniel, one of the things that we've noticed about Daniel is that Daniel has been given the ability to interpret dreams. He's been given visions of the future. And by the way, from Daniel 7 through the end of the book of Daniel, that's exactly the content of what Daniel is giving. Daniel is giving visions of the future. God gives to Daniel his determinant counsel. The plan that God has for this world, God has given it to Daniel, and God chooses to reveal that through visions to Daniel, and Daniel's pinning that down for us so that we can know what the future holds. And so we recognize that Daniel is given this ability, and he gives the outline of future history. And if you want to know, again, again, Daniel gives it in very broad details, but if you go to the book of Revelation, you see the book of Revel the Revelation of Jesus Christ is, it gives more insight. So John the Revelator gives more insight to the outline that Daniel had given us. And so, you know, Daniel and Revelation go together. But anyway, what we realize is that Daniel is revealing to us the foreordained plan of God. And he calls in that text in Daniel chapter number 7 and verse 13, he says, The Son of Man came to the one like the Ancient of Days. And the Ancient of Days there is the one that is the source of all power and dominion. So we know without really having to look into it very deeply, that to whom is that referring? That is referring to God the Father. It's referring to God who is the Creator, who spoke all things into existence. He is the Ancients of Days. And we learn from this text that the Ancient of Days is going to give to the Son of Man a kingdom. And there's some things that that text tells us about that kingdom. When the Son of Man gains His kingdom, the kingdom will have dominion over all dominions. And God will receive glory through that kingdom. And He also tells us that all nations and languages shall serve Him in that kingdom. And that kingdom is everlasting and it shall not be destroyed. So there are the general thoughts about the kingdom that the Son of Man is given, and Daniel reveals that to us, and what truth there is for us to know. The truth of the coming kingdom of the Son of Man, and how He's going to have dominion over all this earth, and that His kingdom will not be destroyed. 
Now, if you've been with me through this study and you've walked along with us, you will remember that Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And Nebuchadnezzar had a dream about an image. And the image, you know, had the head of gold. And, and we went through that whole thing. Um, but we, we know that at the end of that, uh, there was talked about a stone that was uh, cut out of the mountain. It was not made with hands. And, and that stone that was cut out of the mountain came and, and broke down the image that Nebuchadnezzar had saw, have saw. And so we mentioned then that that's talking about the coming kingdom of Jesus Christ. And so we recognize that the, 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 the stone which was cut out of the mountain that destroyed the, the image that Nebuchadnezzar saw is uh, the kingdom of the Son of Man, and it's the same kingdom. The kingdom that was mentioned there earlier in Nebuchadnezzar's dream is the same kingdom that is being that Daniel is sharing with us here in Daniel chapter number 7. And so what does this help us to see? This help us, helps us to see that God has a plan for this world. It helps us to see that there is coming a kingdom of the Son of Man, and we recognize that that kingdom that is coming, the kingdom of the Son of Man, is a kingdom that has been eternally existent. The plan of God that He had for this world, God ordained by what we call eternity past. And what do we mean by eternity past? You know, the word eternity means without beginning and without end. And there's only one thing that is truly eternal, and that is God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. God is the only thing that had no beginning. He says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God is the only thing that has no end. God truly is eternal. And so we recognize when we talk about eternity past, what are we talking about? We're talking about the time before creation. The time when only God existed. And we want to understand there was a time when only God existed. And, and it's not really time because time didn't exist. We recognize that time is part of the creation of God. God said the evening and the morning were the first day. God created time. So there was a time when there was nothing. There was a time when there was only God. And the Bible tells us in Genesis 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. John 1, 1 tells us, and we understand that God in three persons was in the beginning because John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we know that God the Father and God the, the Son was present in the beginning, but also in Genesis 1, 2, it tells us that the Spirit moved upon the face of the waters in creation. And so we know that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit were all present before creation. And so, what do we know? We know that God has revealed to us in His Word that He had established, it's called the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. That's in Acts chapter number 2, verse 22 through 24. And in Acts 4, 27 and 28, it says, Whatsoever of thy hand and thy counsel determined before to be done. And so, so what do we know? That in the time, before time, when only God existed, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, they had a plan. They had a determinate counsel. They had this foreordained plan that they were going to create this earth. 
and on this earth, this, this universe, this world in which we live, all of that which is created, God had a plan to create that. And He had a determinate counsel. He had a plan for how this world was going to operate. And that includes everything. What we know is this. If something happens, it happens according to the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Nothing happens in creation apart from the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. And so we understand that God has this plan. And by the way, it's because of the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God that prophets can prophesy. It's why Daniel can reveal to us these visions and these dreams and know that they come to pass. That's why we could read in, in the book of Luke and it, and it began to tell us about the things that were going to happen in the life of, of Jesus. And, and we could know that we would look back earlier, well, just about, about Mary, and, and you'll have a son and you'll call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And, and we could look back into earlier uh, uh, prophecies and think about those prophecies that were made and see how they were fulfilled. The reason that is able to happen is because of the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God. Everything that happens, God has already ordained. And so we understand that. That's also one of the ways we know the Word of God is verified. Because when a prophet prophesies, a prophet that came from God, and then his prophecies come true... That's the way you know the Word of God is verified. Like we mentioned last week, I think it was, when we talked about Cyrus, the king that was going to rise up. It was prophesied over 200 years before he was born that he would come into power. That's one of the ways we know the Word of God is true. But it's also one of the reasons that we can have faith. This world is not arbitrary. This world is not happening by chance. The sovereign God who created this world and His determinate counsel and foreknowledge is operating this world. We can have faith in Him. We can have faith in Him because we know who He is. We can have faith in Him because we know He has a plan. We can have faith in Him because we know that He is worthy. And so we can have faith in God because we know who God is. All that the Ancient of Days has determined to happen. The, the, the will of God is going to be accomplished. The plan of God will be completed. And even today, as we look to the future and we, we see what's going on in the world and we begin to think, maybe sometimes we might think, oh no, what are we going to do now? Hamas attacked Israel. Oh no, what are we going to do now, people might say. Listen, we, we don't have to worry about the future because it's been revealed to us exactly what's going to happen. We don't know all the intricate details, but God has revealed to us in His Word what's going to happen from here to eternity. And all we have to do is trust in it. All we have to do is to know it and believe it. And, and we don't have to worry because God has already revealed to us what's going to happen in His Word. And if we can take that and apply that to our lives, how much, how much better our lives would be because we're not thinking about the world being arbitrary. We're knowing that this world is following the plan of God and ultimately He's going to receive His glory in this world. And so we can trust in that. And so, 
What we find in the book of Daniel, what we read there in Daniel chapter number 7, verses 13 and 14, is actually going to be revealed in, or fulfilled in Revelation chapter number 21. And, and I'm just going to turn there for you just real quick, just, just read one verse to you. What you see in Revelation 21 and 22 is the fulfillment of God's plan. It says, And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. You see, there's coming a time when the kingdom of Jesus is going to be revealed. And all things are going to be made new. And that's what Daniel is talking about. Daniel is talking about this kingdom. And when you go back and look in uh, earlier and see when Jesus actually comes and sets upon his throne for a thousand years, and then, uh, then there's other events that happen when Satan is loosed, and then finally Satan is bound and cast into the lake of fire, and, and then Jesus comes and makes all things new. That's what Daniel is prophesying is going to come about, and we can believe it. And, and, but the thing of it is, there is so much that has to be accomplished before that real is reality. And what we know as we look into the Word of God is that God, through His Word, peeled back the curtain just enough for us to peek into His throne room and to see His blueprint for creation. So God has a plan, and He's peeled back the curtain just enough for you to see that He is going to accomplish His purpose. And He's going to make all things new. And His kingdom is coming. And He's going to receive the glory of that kingdom. But He doesn't give us all the details. You see, knowing that this plan of God is, is present gives us hope. We can trust His plan. When we think about how this world is going and how we think the world might be out of hand, we can hope in God. That His plan is going to be accomplished. And when we maybe don't know how, what's going to happen next and what's going to happen tomorrow and, oh no, what if this person gets elected? Or, or, or what, you know, what if uh, you know, there's another virus that's let loose? Or whatever we might think that might cause us worry and concern. We can just trust the plan of God. We can believe Him and believe that He's got it all in control. And this world is happening exactly as he has determined it to uh, happen. It gives us hope that this world is not hopeless, that this world is not out of control, that there is purpose to this world, that my life is not out of control. My life has rhyme and reason. There is a, a reason why I was created, and God is doing something in and through my life, and I can trust him, and I can have hope. There's, there's so many things that we could stop and talk about here. But one of the things we want to understand is as God has peeled back the curtain for us to peep into His throne room, one of the things He has not done is give us all the details. He doesn't overwhelm us with all of the details because the details of how He's going to accomplish His purpose, if He told us every single move that He's going to make in this world, it would overwhelm us. As a matter of fact, you know, we should not expect God to give us all the details. He gives us just enough information that we can have faith. Just enough information that we can trust in Him. 
You know, J. Warner Wallace, who is the author of Cold Case Christianity and Forensic Faith that we went through a, a few years ago at camp, one of the things he says is he is a cold case detective. One of the things he talks about in uh, California, because that's where he tries all of his cases, one of the things he says is that in the instructions to the jury in the state of California, they make sure that people uh, know that it's not possible and it's not required of them to answer every question that someone in a jury might have. It's not possible to answer every question. You don't have to prove the case beyond doubt. You have to prove the case beyond a reasonable doubt. You see, you couldn't answer every question that needs to be answered. It's not possible to do that. You can't answer every question that needs to be asked. By the way, he's tried cases where there is nobody present. They're going to try someone for murder, but they don't have a body. And they gain enough evidence to convict the person even though there's no dead body. And like, well, how can you do that? Because the question that might come into someone's mind is, how can you have a murder case when you have no body? And so he talks about that you answer questions so that you can make a reasonable inference concerning the truth of the matter. And he goes through a thing how that you make a reasonable inference as a parent, you know. You hear a crash in the kitchen and you go in there and the only person that's in the kitchen, it's only you and the child in the house. And you know you were in the living room, and you don't know where the child was exactly, but you hear a crash in the kitchen, and the cookie jar's on the floor. You didn't see the child do it, but you can make a reasonable inference that the child did it, right? Because you know you didn't do it, and so you can be reasonable. You can make a reasonable inference, and you don't have any pets living in the house. It's just you two. You're the only ones there, and you don't believe in ghosts, so a ghost didn't do it. So you can make a reasonable inference that the child tried to get in the cookie jar and by the way, you go in there, and there's a, there's a chair sitting beside the counter, you know, where the cookie jar was, and you, could, you make a reasonable inference as who broke the cookie jar, right? So you don't have every question answered. You didn't see it with your own eyes, but you can make a reasonable inference how that came about. So, so the point being is you don't have to have every question answered to be able to determine the truth of the matter. You can make, be convicted about a decision that you make, because of a reasonable inference. And that's why we don't need to know every detail of what God is doing. We can make a reasonable inference of what God tells us in His Word, and we see how it's played out through history, that we can make a reasonable inference that God created all things and that He has a kingdom, and, and that His kingdom uh, is going, the, the kingdom that He gives to Jesus is going to last forever. So, so God gives us just enough information to make a reasonable inference of the truth of His Word and His coming kingdom. The information that He gives us doesn't need to answer every question that we might have about the future. And how's God going to do this? And how's God going to do that? And I don't, we don't have to answer all of that. All we can do is know His Word and believe His Word and put our faith in His Word. So, so there we... We understand that about Daniel and what Daniel's doing. Daniel is just peeling back the curtain a little bit for us to help us understand what God is doing. The second thing that we want to understand is that it reads in our text in Daniel 7, it says, And the Son of Man came to the Ancient of Days. 
there's some things that it tells us about the Son of Man. He comes with clouds. That's the Son of Man telling us that He's one with the Father in His language to help us understand the Son of Man is one with the Father, yet there are two distinct persons. Okay? But we see that term, Son of Man. And that's a term that as you read through the Scripture, read through the book of Ezekiel, that's a term that is used often, and sometimes that term is used only to speak of natural man. It's the title describing the humanity of Jesus, and Jason Schultz said, Jesus is the perfect specimen of humanity. And so when you see the term Son of Man, that's one of the things that you see. But also you see the, the term Son of Man found in the book of Revelation. In chapter number 1 it says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks was one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about with a paps with a golden girdle. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and his hand in his hand a sharp sickle. And so we can make a reasonable inference about who that is, right? With us studying the Scripture, we know, oh, that's talking about Jesus, right? So this, this term that's used to identify the Son of Man here by Daniel is not a term that's used by accident. And when you get to the Gospel writings and you see the, the Gospel writers writing about Jesus, there's some different terms they use, but the term, one of the terms is the Son of Man. By the way, when Jesus is referring to himself, he uses the term Son of Man most often. And so when you read through the Gospels and you see that term Son of Man, that's a term that is used on purpose and with a purpose. It's to help us identify a couple of things. It's first of all helping us to identify with the humanity of Jesus. That he was fully God, but he was fully man. And it's also to help us to understand Daniel chapter number 7. The, the, the connection between Jesus and this prophecy in Daniel chapter number 7, where the Son of Man is coming and he's going to have a kingdom. And so, using the term Son of Man in the Gospels draws us back to Daniel chapter number 7 to draw our attention to this prophecy of Daniel. And so, when Jesus spoke of the Son of Man, when He was referring to Himself in the Gospels, His audience, the one that heard Him, the religious crowd, they would know exactly what He was saying. In essence, He is implying, I am the Son of Man from Daniel chapter number 7. So every time you go through the Gospels, and you see Jesus referring to Himself as the Son of Man, He is claiming to be the Son of Man. He doesn't come out and say, I'm the Son of Man, but when He refers to Himself as the Son of Man, you know that He is drawing their attention back to Daniel chapter number 7. And He's also claiming to be deity. If you go back and read Luke chapter number 1 and, and what Mark Anthony read today, you'll see even where it says him being the Son of Most High and coming with clouds and all of that. That draws our attention back to Daniel chapter number 7. But also Jesus claimed deity when it says in Matthew 9, 6, but that you may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. 
There's only one that has the power to forgive sins, and that's God the Father. But Jesus is saying, when I forgive sins, as the Son of Man, recognize I'm claiming to be God. He doesn't come out and say, look, I'm God so I can forgive sins. But he says, the Son of Man hath power to forgive sins. So he is saying, I am God. So we also learn from this text that this Son of Man receives an eternal kingdom. The kingdom has dominion or power and glory. And when you read the New Testament references to the Son of Man, the power and the glory that's mentioned here in Daniel chapter number 7 is often mentioned. And so, when the gospel writers are saying the Son of Man and the power and the glory that He has, it's, it's drawing the attention of those who are hearing Him and reading the text back to Daniel chapter number 7. It's always pulling us back to what did Daniel say was going to happen in, uh, in, when the Son of Man comes. Power and glory is His. And so all of that information is to help us see that Jesus is the one that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 7. And then you see the references to the Son of Man in Revelation chapter number 1. It's to draw our attention that the Son of Man in Revelation is the Son of Man in Daniel chapter number 7. It's to draw all of our attention together to see Jesus is this one that is the Son of Man. And when His kingdom comes, His kingdom will have dominion and glory. And so, we want to think through this and see that this phrase, the Son of Man, is Christ's own description of Himself. It's the term that links Him, links him to humanity and shows His intimate and positive relationship to the human race. Again, I mentioned the Gospel writers using that term. It's found 32 times in the book of Matthew, 15 times in the book of Mark, 26 times in the book of Luke, and 12 in the book of John. 85 times in the Gospels that term Son of Man is used. The term Son of God is only used 28 times. And so it is the term the Gospel writers used to describe Jesus. It's significant and deserves a little investigation. So why is it significant, the Son of Man? Well, first of all, God said in the beginning, let us make Man, which is the Hebrew word Adam, let us make Adam, man, in our own image. Adam, the Hebrew word for man. When Adam sinned in the garden, what happened? It plunged every man into sin. The book of Romans tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for, all, for that all have sinned. And so we know that when Adam sinned, it plunged us all into sin. <clears throat> so then how are we going to be redeemed? If we are separated from God when Adam sinned in the garden, how are you going to go back and have a relationship with God if you're removed from the presence of God? <coughs> Here's why. Jesus, as the God-man, Jesus is called the second Adam. Jesus came as our representative. You see, Adam stood as our representative in the garden, and when he sinned, it plunged all of us into sin. But then when Jesus came as the God-man, he was able to stand as our representative 
and be obedient to the commandments of God on our behalf. And so therefore, the scripture says, He obtained eternal redemption for us. Romans 5.15 says, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one, being Adam, many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. So what's the significance of the Son of Man? That Jesus being known as the Son of Man, it gives Him, since He is God in flesh, since He is fully man, it gives Him the opportunity to be our representative, to represent us before God. So that's why it's significant that he's the son of man. It's also significant because it's the term that Jesus uh, uses to refer to himself the most often, and, and we've already tried to convey those thoughts to you. And by the way, it's, it's impossible for me to, I mean, really, if we were going to investigate this, we would go to all 85 of those references and say, okay, what's Jesus saying when he says son of man here? And we investigate all of those and see the true significance, but... I don't think you all want me to chase all 85 of those and explain them to you in this sermon today. I think it's beyond the scope. But that would be a good practice for you. It would be a good thing for you to do and go home and find out those 85 references and what was Jesus saying when he said that. But he's referring to himself when he says the Son of Man. It's also significant because those who have ears to hear would understand that, that Jesus is revealing something about himself. When he stood before them and said, when the Son of Man says, those that had ears to hear would understand. Oh, he's drawing our hearts back to Daniel chapter number 7. Oh, he's saying he's the one that has the kingdom. He's saying that his kingdom is the one that's going to have power and glory. Oh, he's the one that's saying his kingdom is eternal. You see, using that phrase would automatically draw their attention back. And by the way, when Jesus is talking to the high priest in Mark chapter number 14, he says, But he held his peace and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him and said unto him, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of glory. What's he doing? He's drawing the high priest's attention back to Daniel chapter number 7. And he's saying, I am the Son of the Most High. I am the Son of Man. It's also significant because we see that Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the seed of the woman. And so therefore, he can be God and man. He, didn't, he wasn't born into the world as you and I were through the seed of man. Jesus was born of the seed of woman. And so he is born as a man. And since he is fully man, he can identify with our infirmities. He can be felt with the feelings of our infirmities. He can, he can understand what it's like to be tempted in the flesh. You face temptations, right? Jesus can understand what that's like. Jesus can understand what it's like to experience loss. And we do that on a daily basis, right? And when we experience loss, you know... You might go to someone other person and say, well, that, you don't, how many of you have heard somebody say this? Well, you don't really know how I feel because you've never experienced this, right? But Jesus can because he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. And so he experienced everything that we experienced. That's the reason it's important for him to be the son of man because he can experience loss like we experienced. He experienced hunger 
He knows what it's like to be rejected by his friends. He knows what it's like to be homeless. He knows what it's like to be despised by his family. He knows what it's like to bear the burden of the certainty of death before him. And we could go on and on and on and talk about the ways that Jesus experienced what we experience in our daily lives. But everything that you experience in life, because Jesus is the Son of Man, He's felt with the feeling of that infirmity. And He walked through that without sin. And so now, He can bear your burdens for you because He has experienced that on your behalf. And He took that and He nailed it to the tree. So there's so much significance about Jesus being fully man, to be the Son of Man. Yes, He's coming with a kingdom and glory and dominion, but He's also a man like we are. So He can be felt with the feelings of our infirmities. So, so Daniel reveals to us the Son of Man will come to earth. The Gospels teach us that Jesus is the Son of Man that He was born of a virgin, that He is God incarnate, and the incarnation of Jesus is significant in so many ways. And every one of them would give us a reason to celebrate His birth. However, there's one that I think is the most significant, and it's found in the book of Isaiah in chapter number 53, verse number 11, and it says this, He shall see the travail of His soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. The best reason to celebrate Christmas, to celebrate the incarnation of Jesus, is because you know that God came as a man so that he could fulfill the law's demands. And because he fulfilled the law's demands, he could stand in our place and bear our iniquities and justify those who follow Him. Who are those that are justified, and it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It's significant that Jesus came as the Son of Man so that He could bear our iniquity. And whoever will call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Which implies this. If you don't call upon the name of the Lord, you are not saved. So the question today is, have you called upon the name of the Lord? If you have not, today is the day to call upon the name of the Lord because calling on the name of the Lord is the only way that you can be saved. But Jesus came as man to gain a kingdom and to bear our iniquities. That gives us reason to rejoice today. Heavenly Father, I just pray that you will help us to rejoice in the birth of the Savior the Son of Man, which came to give His kingdom. I pray, God, that each of us will understand the need to love You with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because You are the Son of Man who came to bear our iniquities on the cross. Encourage Your people today, I pray. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's all stand, and we're going to turn to page number...